If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. I'm complaining to John here. I have plantar fasciitis. Plantar fasciitis. In my heel. Incredibly Yeah, it's the sole of your foot. And what it does is that kind of, um, what do you call it? Grizzly bit or whatever it is. Yeah. Tightens up. And then it pulls your whole foot out of shape. But it's your heels really sore. Yeah, yeah. No, Sorry, it, by the way, this is two uh, very just, pathetic representations of manhood here discussing their ailments. So last yeah. week, my hip was gone, right? Yes. Okay, and I was taking and the I, drugs. I, I, and I was taking the drugs to go on stage. <laughs> right? Too many, actually. I, far too many, far too many, right? And my opioids. And now I get up the other day. And my heel is gone. Yeah, no, it's it's part, I, I would imagine it's part of the same thing. But I had that a few years ago and it was just before I was about to go on that big hike in the Picos. That's not a good idea. And uh, no, but I had to really, it took me a month of intensive work to get to get month. it. Yeah. To, so I could, I could do that hike. Well, listen, if anybody's got any solutions to the pathetic sight of an outlet far too old to play five-a-side soccer who's who's yeah. thinking my football career is down. over. You need a rocking chair, Macker. And, and just, a complan. Exactly. Just stick to that. And a rug. I just need a rug of knees. knees. And some of those soft, you know those creepy priest shoes? Remember the priests? I thought you already had them, Mac. No, I don't. I don't. No, you sure? But do you remember that? I was always really, I, the, the one thing about creepy priests in school, you could never hear them come up behind you. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yes. And they just kind yes. of arrived. Like, oh, Jesus. Right? It's because they had those so kind of... true, actually. It's because they had the kind of orthopedic shoes they used to wear. Yeah. This is my theory about creepy priests <laughs> and how they'd arrive up. And it was like, my mother's this great expression for uh, as a, somebody's a go-be-the-wall. Have you ever heard that expression? Go-be-the-wall? No. A person's a go-be-the-wall. It's a brilliant cork expression, right? Somebody's a go-be-the-wall. You wouldn't really trust them. They're kind of go-be-the-wall. Like they're kind of like, like a little shady person. Right, 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 right. And I always yeah. remember the priests in school were like go-be-the-walls because they creep up on you in their orthopedic shoes. And now I'm going to become one of them. <laughs> Listen, you're just back from Madrid, you big swanky Yo, globetrotter. How was it? Fantastic. Although I've got my my medical issues as oh, well. Okay. And this is going to sound weird, but I fell out of the shower <laughs> on my first you, night you there. Stoshes? 
No, no, it wasn't. I just, I, it was just a sleepy floor. And I stepped it out. Usually it's, it's called, but it's I hit this whole glass thing. Ah, Jesus. And I'm, I sliced up my hand and my arse actually. And I'm just in bits. I'm really, really sore. But anyway, Madrid <laughs> is a fantastic city. I was really, really taken by it. Really grandiose. Yeah. It's the it's best an way imperial to city, it. isn't it? Oh, it's gorgeous. All the architecture, every street you walk down, beautiful. You know, we tried, I don't know how many wines. I tried to keep track of the wines, but I kind of lost track. That's always Amongst a good the, sign. The, the haze of tapas and wines. And, and Yeah, oh, it was gorgeous. Gorgeous. Well, interesting. We're going to talk about cities, John, today. Mm. We're going to talk about cities. Amazing thing about city like Madrid, Paris, London, these are big imperial cities. They're kind of statement cities. They're yeah. cities that say, we're here, we're big, and we are the center of an empire. Yeah. So Madrid, the center of, of course, the Spanish empire. And it's when you don't speak Spanish and you're not part of the Hispanic world, right? It's easy to forget just how enormous the Spanish empire was. And how unbelievably rich it was. Yeah, unbelievably yeah rich. it must have been. And Madrid was their imperial capital. Now, it's a fantastic economic lesson for Madrid, right? Which is the following. Madrid becomes enormous after the plunder of South America. Yeah. And South America's plunder was largely gold and silver. And interestingly, then, all sorts of plants, like potatoes and all these sort of various different plants that the Incas had perfected. Mm. So there was a horticultural bonanza as well as a metallic bonanza for white people. Right, yeah, now, yeah, yeah. for the ethnic Latin Americans, South Americans, yeah. uh, it was a total disaster. But there's a fascinating book called The Power of Gold, by Peter Bernstein, and it talks about what actually happened in the Spanish economy in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, right? So right. Spain goes into the 16th century, the richest country in the world by a country mile, right? But something bizarre happens. They bring all the gold back and the silver, right? From Latin America, yeah. from South America, which were the Spanish colonies, right? And rather than getting rich, they end up getting quite poor. And what happened, and it's a very interesting, remember we talked about Dutch disease and all this sort of yeah. stuff the last time? The it's Spaniards, sort of blowing it all, was it? It blew it all. It was like it was like but you can a, see it was like that a country the, that, that won the lotto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can actually see that in the city. You know, every street you walk down, gorgeous architecture, really intricate designs and all those. And, and, it's, and it's, you it's need big money need, and 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 to pay. You know, the top craftsmen of of the time, I'm sure, all came down to Madrid. That's exactly what happened. So you had like Madrid, basically the Spaniards. Two things happened. It's much much easier to spend other people's money than to work for a living. That's a general rule, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, okay? I go along with that. So, so think about it, right? So the, the, the Spaniards took all the gold from the South Americans, right? They minted it all down. They turned it into gold ducats. Then they had money for nothing. They were yeah. like sitting on a big mint. They were actually sitting on a gold mine. So they started to spend the money. Then once you start spending money, sure, working's a pain in the arse. You couldn't be arse going out to work, right? Spain ends up not being able to feed itself. It's an extraordinary story, right? Wow. It ends up with no manufacturing industry, right? Yeah. They, actually, as you said, they outsource everything. So if you're the, the star architect of the 16th century, yes, you exactly. leave, right? And all the money of Spain ends up in the Netherlands. This is the fascinating thing, in the lowlands, right? Yeah. So the Dutch said, we'll make everything, we'll trade everything, 
we'll basically make everything you want. You just trade it with us. And so what you see in these legacy cities is the sort of, it's the economics of plunder, yeah. which looks amazing 400 years later, but it's actually a different model of city to the city I want to talk about today. There's other cities right, go on. that establish themselves as trading outposts. And those cities basically live off their wits. They live off their brains. One of them, a great one would be Shanghai, which yeah. became a trading outpost for Westerners. So anybody who wanted to trade with China had to get a license in Shanghai, which is why Shanghai is broken up into French Quarter, a British Quarter, American Quarter, right. German Quarter. Yeah. So yeah. Right, right. Bombay is another great city. Petersburg, all these cities that were invented. And the one I want to talk about today is kind of tragic. Well, it's not kind of tragic. It's absolutely tragic. Is the city of Odessa. Yeah. Because Odessa is a city that looks as if it's about to be bombed in the next few days. Absolutely. By the next week. Yeah. And it is a most fascinating, fascinating place, right? It's also a most fascinating history of a city. It's that brilliant intersection where economics meets finance, meets money, meets people trying to transform their own lives, meets refugees, people coming from elsewhere, meets prospectors and gamblers and entrepreneurs and chancers, all in this extraordinary melting pot. And this melting pot is Odessa, and it looks as if it's about to be obliterated. Yeah, it's certainly in the crosshairs of the Russians. Well, I think that the Russians want to take it. Yeah. Now, we're going to talk about Odessa today, and it's an unusual, it's a different podcast, right? But it's a podcast about cities and what cities stand for. Because cities do have personalities. Cities do, as you talk about Madrid, it has a personality. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and yeah. and cities have personalities. They have characteristics. They have traits. They represent things. Some cities represent, for example, dominance. Like Moscow now will represent dominance, mm. aggression, imperial overreach. Odessa much more represents kind of Zelensky, nimble, funny, yeah, the small guy, the victim, but the victim that's clever and maybe can actually sidestep. A little the, bit edgy and yeah, stuff. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's a book I read ages ago by Charles King. I think I might have told you about it. Yes, you called did. Yeah. Odessa, Genius and Death in the City of Dreams. And I read this because I was going to go there. I, that's what I was going to say. I remember yourself and Murphy were going to head off there. We were going to head off there. We were going to head off there to see... You know Richard Cook, who does Kilkenomics with me? Yes. Because he's yeah. learning Russian out there, and he right. was. We were going to go, and Richard had come down, right? But I read this book before Is Christmas. He's still there, by the way. No, he's, he's, he's back home. But I read this book before Christmas. He's just left. Yeah. I read this book before Christmas in order to get a sense of the place, in order to travel there this year, at some stage, maybe in the summer, to explore it. Yeah. I never thought that I would be reading the book about a city that is about to be destroyed. So the guy who wrote this book is Charles King. He's a professor of international relations at Georgetown University. He writes, he's author of five books on Eastern Europe and the region. A really amazing guy, extraordinary grasp. Is he going to be on our first 11, do you think? Oh, he could play himself in. Well, given that my foot, between your hand and my foot, it'll be the first nine. There'll be two extra things. So let's go and talk to Charles King. Let's have a chat to Charles. Charles, how are you? Good morning to you. I'm, I'm very good. Thank you. Thanks so much for having having me on. I'm a great fan. Not at all. Not at all. I want to, I want to establish the fact that you actually are from the Ozark. I am from the Ozark Mountains. 
very, very old mountains up in the northwest corner of Arkansas and into into Missouri. And uh, yeah, I grew up and went to went to college there. My mom still lives on the uh, on the family farm. Because because you know, obviously, it has been propelled to. What do you grow on that farm? Heroin, of course. <laughs> I, I did grow up on a cattle farm with some horses um, along the way. And and now, of course, everybody knows Ozark with, without the S because of, uh, because of the series. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's actually completely captivated, certainly in Ireland. Uh, it's yeah. captivated people. And there's a certain proximity because those original Ozark people are probably, as you we were saying, Appalachians. And they're originally probably from, from here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, sort of Scots-Irish adventurers and pioneers and settlers, um, you know, moved into that uh, part of the country in the late 18th and, and early 19th centuries. And yeah, in fact, my family, the Kings, which I think is a Scots-Irish uh, family, came to that part of part of the state from Tennessee in the um, 1870s, 1880s. So they've been there for a long time. Yeah, no, because as you, you know, some people don't know the expression, the American expression, hillbilly, is actually mm-hmm. comes from followers of King Billy, i.e. northern loyalists who yeah, live in the hills, in the Appalachian hills. That's their problem. That's right. And, yeah, the, no, that's right. There's a long tail there. In fact, my, my the, the place where I went to college in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where the University of Arkansas is located, actually had a had a bagpipe band. So, you know, there, there are these long, long traditions out there that remain. Now, listen, Charles, let's, go, let's talk about Odessa. I read your book. I don't, know, I don't know why I picked it up or when I picked it up, but I read it a couple of months ago. Fascinating. Tell me about Odessa. And the reason I want to talk about Odessa, because it is very, very clear that this is the next target for this Russian invasion, this artillery attack. And I think, lamentably, this will be somewhere where we're going to hear about a lot in the next few days for all the wrong reasons. I think that's sadly true that, you know, you you look at the, the pictures that have been coming out of Odessa over the last week or so, and you see the sandbags being piled up on the on the on the beachfront. You see the anti-tank hedgehogs, those crisscross things welded to prevent tanks from coming down the street, um, littering all the main streets in the old historic city center. And the one thing that was very moving to me is that local residents had sandbagged a, a very famous statue of the French adventurer, the Duc de Richelieu which is a real symbol of the city, right at the top of those famous Odessa steps that lead down to the to the port. And uh, just his head, the head of the statue peeking out from behind sandbags as people rush to save the amazing historic heritage of this city from Russian bombardment and, and missiles. You know, the, the, the first thing I think to understand about the city is that it's really, despite its history, despite its heritage, it's a very young city. I live in Washington, D.C., and it's older than, than Odessa is. So it's a very, you know, it was founded in the early 1790s as Russia's kind of window on the, on the world, the Russian Empire's window on the world. And what's so sad in this present moment is that, you know, Russia has become everything that Odessa was built to fight against. Explain that to me. Well, it's this, it's this cosmopolitan city where um, you, street after street is a kind of Russianized or now Ukrainianized version of a foreign name. You know, whether it's the Duc de Richelieu, who is a refugee from the French Revolution, or a person named Jose de Ribas, who was this Neapolitan adventurer, who is the real founding father of the city in the late 18th century. And name after name, you know, these, these great associations, Isaac Babel, the great Russian short story writer, um, the creator of a kind of, of an image of Jewish Odessa. 
in the early 20th century, the poet Anna Akhmatova, you know, people who are, are cosmopolitan and open to the world and simply don't believe in the idea of exclusive pure nationalism. You know, that's what the city kind of represented over its um, just a little over two centuries of history. Russia has become the opposite, right? The, the great Russian idea, Russian nationalism, a, a dictatorial political system. Um, and that's why in so many ways throughout its history, Odessa has been a very dangerous place to be. Because it represents something that is at odds with various incarnations of Russian rule. Exactly right. Uh, at odds with incorrigible, difficult to control. You know, it's all of those essential features of urban life, of creative urban life, that whether it was under Stalin or now under Putin, or for that matter, under the, the, the Russian Tsars, the city has seemed a place of revolutionary fervor, you know, where, where the arts and politics mix in ways that for authoritarian leaders have been very dangerous. Yeah, they're almost dangerous. They're almost annoying initially for authoritarian leaders because it's kind of an annoyance that there's a fracture. Yeah. Let's go back because I read your book. And again, I'd assumed that around the Black Sea, there were these settlements that go all the way back to the early Greeks and before that, and that Odessa would have been part of that. It would have been some sort of Greek trading settlement that then, there, then became Russified, la la la. It wasn't. It was kind of an invented city. Yeah, it was very much an invented city. There were Greek settlements, much more important Greek settlements, uh, dotted all around the Black Sea from, oh, the 6th or 7th century BC on, then later became Roman trading ports. But Odessa, apart from being a, a kind of small Ottoman outpost by, by the 18th century, really had, had nothing to recommend it. But it had a pretty good port. And as the Russians moved south in the, uh, in the late 18th century, pushing out the Ottomans, who had vaguely controlled that part of the northern coast of the Black Sea for more than two centuries, the Russians decide to establish a port city there that will begin to link up with trade coming from the north, from wheat fields of, of what will become Ukraine, even farther north into Poland. And by the beginning of the 19th century, Odessa has become the most important commercial port for the Russian Empire on, on the Black Sea. And from there, and this is the days before the opening of the Suez Canal, so trade around the Black Sea and through the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles into the Mediterranean, out into the Atlantic, that is that becomes hugely important. And for a while, the fruits of uh, Russian and Ukrainian fields flow through Odessa and makes it very, very rich by the middle of the 19th century. So tell me, like, who, who is living there? Like, who, I mean, again, because new cities are always fascinating, whether it's a Shanghai kind of was dreamed up at a certain stage or even you know, like St. Petersburg was dreamed up at a certain stage. You know, Bombay was dreamed up. These new commercial cities, they attract in all sorts of characters, all sorts of people, people looking for a break, people looking to make money, people looking to run away from stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. and therein lies their urban excitement because you have yeah. all sorts of creatures. So who's, who's, who's in Odessa, let's say, 100 years ago? Well, I mean, one way to think about it is this is kind of the the gulf of, of, of the late 18th and 19th centuries, right? So you've got a political power that controls the place. But since it's a free port, that is to say it's a, it's a place where you can trade without overbearing burdensome taxes, 
you have people flowing in from all across Europe. Of course, there are people we would now call Russians and Ukrainians, Jews who increasingly come to the city from the north, but also French nobles exiled after the French Revolution. You have Italian traders. For a while, Italian is a kind of lingua franca in the 18-teens and 20s in Odessa. And it develops this kind of reputation as a kind of cosmopolitan, difficult to control space on the back of these amazing trade networks and relationships that are developing. And like, you know, I'm, I'm talking your book, but I mean, even there's like, you know, Pushkin is hanging out there. Eisenstein is there. Babel is there, as you said. I mean, some of the greats of Soviet stroke Russian intellectualism are in Odessa. So it That's is, right. So, so give me a flavor of that. Yeah. So, I mean, Pushkin comes there in the 1820s, not of his own will, because even though Odessa is a growing wealthy port, there's not much around it out in the countryside. And Pushkin, who had defended the sensibilities of the of the Russian elite as a poet, who never pulled his punches as, as a poet, was exiled there in the early 1820s, fell in love actually with the wife of the with the wife of the of, of the, the local of the governor, governor wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was that was quite a dangerous, it was quite a dangerous affair to be well, having. It was, it was pretty dangerous, but Lanyard Love will out. And uh, he sort of immortalized that relationship in Yevgeny Onegin, the great novel in verse, of course, later, later the famous opera. But that the storyline about an old lover who comes back and sort of tempts a, a woman who is happily married to a, a man of prominence is very much the story of Pushkin and Liz Voronsova and the governor uh, Voronsov. But, you know, it, Odessa, because it's this window onto the rest of the world, it literally looks out on the on the Black Sea and looks toward Istanbul and looks toward the Mediterranean. You know, it has a temperate climate. It feels much more like a Mediterranean city than it does like a Ukrainian or earlier Russian imperial city. And for that reason, I think it just attracts people to the, this sort of sense of openness and possibility and self-reinvention over time become very much part of the, the Odessan landscape. And what the book also does is it goes through this kind of heyday, this late 19th century, early 20th century heyday where you've flourishing of, you've got money. So once you've got money, you've got art, you've got literature, you've got a burgeoning middle class, you've got people on the way up, you've got people with social aspirations, with pretensions, all the good stuff, all the stuff that makes the world go round. And then you, you move to the Second World War, and the absolute horror of, I would say, one of the more unreported holocausts that yeah. occurred in Central, I mean, it's crazy to call it Central Europe, but I, I mean that in parentheses, in that neck yeah. of the woods. Explain what was going on there, you know, prior to the Second World War, then the beginning of Sovietism, and then the Nazi, and then Romanian invasion. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's an episode of the Holocaust that is not very well known at all. But during the Second World War, Odessa was the only major Soviet city to be occupied by someone other than the Germans. So um, it was occupied in, in 1941 with the Axis invasion of the Soviet Union. I use that term because, of course, we think of the German invasion of the Soviet Union, but it's German allies in Europe who are also part of those invading forces, the most important of which in the, in the, the Southern theater were the Romanians on the German side during the Second World War for most of the Second World War. And they occupy Odessa 
and set up as part of their own land grab and nation building expansionist policy, this idea of expanding Romanian territory along the Northwest coast of, of the Black Sea. They create a, their own kind of colony in the same way that the Germans had done in Poland and, and portions of the occupied Soviet Union. They create their own colony called Transnistria. That is on the other side of the Dniester or Nistru, as the Romanians call it, river. And uh, for the period from 41 to 43, that that area is occupied by the Romanians, the city and the surrounding countryside become killing fields. The Romanians are responsible for killing more Jews during the Second World War than any country other than Nazi Germany, from by deporting Jewish citizens from the city out to camps that the Romanians had created in this Transnistria zone, or by, especially in 1941 itself, right at the time of the, the beginning of the occupation, massacring Jews inside the city. And in working on this book, one of the things that I came across were things that I think had not been seen since 1945, um, you know, documents, letters that had been written to the Romanian occupation authorities where average Odessan citizens, non-Jews, were denouncing their, their Jewish neighbors. So, you know, it, it is a history both of cosmopolitanism and cooperation and multiculturalism, but in times of crisis, the city has had a propensity to kind of devour itself. And it's, it's, it's both sides of, of, of that history that I think one has to comprehend in, in looking at the long, the long past of this remarkable place. And, and so by 1945, the, the, the Jewish population is decimated completely. It's virtually wiped out. From having been what? like For about a quarter of the population before to being virtually zero. Now, the good news is that the Soviets had a remarkable evacuation effort at the very beginning before the Romanian troops arrived. And so a good part of Odessa, filmmakers, writers, artists, and, and, and other intellectuals, including just average folks, decamped to other parts of the Soviet Union, including as far afield as, as Central Asia, which became you know, a remarkable center of Soviet culture during, during the occupation years. Um, but for those that, that remained, it, it, it was virtually impossible to survive within Odessa itself. And so people were either deported where they died of starvation or disease or were actively killed by, by Romanian soldiers and gendarmes during the, um, during the war. Yeah, no, it's, it's a funny, it's, it's, it was very eye-opening for me reading it because it's an episode that I think very, very few people are aware of. It's a very, very dark piece of Romanian history, which their Romanians aren't very, very quick to admit to or to revise in any way. But that being said, let's, go forward then to the Soviet time. So what sort of city is it under Stalin, but then under Brezhnev and the thaws of the 70s, under Gorbachev? What sort of place is it? Yeah, well, it, you know, it had had this incredibly dark episode in the Second World War, of course, but there was this sort of ashen thread that, that runs through Odessa's history, not only of great triumphs and cultural achievements and so forth, but of violence. You know, I mean, whether it's you know, the fact that at the end of the 19th century, Odessa had the highest suicide rate in the Russian empire. I mean, you think you think about the economic dimensions of this, that, you know, life rises and 
falls on the market. And when wheat prices tank, you know, businesses are ruined. Or when there's a war somewhere in the Ottoman Empire or um, warships on the Black Sea, businesses fail and livelihoods disappear. And so, we, you know, part of the life of this city was this incredible up and down. And then you add to that the plague, you know, that this is, this is a, a plague-strewn city throughout most of the 19th century. So all of those things together mean that by the time the Second World War is over, I think people are much more interested in remembering the good times than the bad. And, and in some ways, what happens after 45 is the is under the Soviets, the, the creation of a saccharine version of Odessa's history, that it's all about, you know, Jewish comedians, and it's all about the nostalgia for the late 19th century and, and, and cafes and, you know, this cosmopolitan world. And, and, and then, of course, Odessa's declared after the war a hero city, a designation that only a few Soviet cities, Leningrad, for example, had because of the way in which they had resisted the occupiers. But even that, you know, in the Odessa case is is a little bit of a whitewash because it wasn't so much the resistance to the occupiers, but the way the very complicated stories of resistance and collaboration under the Romanians that really is the true history of the city. But it is certainly true that after 45, Odessa musicians and, and comedians and artists and opera singers, you know, become renowned, not only across the Soviet Union, but around the world. And tell me, you know, you, you're a professor of politics, uh, you, you're of ethnicity, you write about, you embrace that part of the world, you know, Russia and Ukraine for uh, all your career, as far as I can see, Charles. What is the situation now? What do you think? I mean, again, this is not just putting on your historian of Odessa and cities, on, but your historian of, the, of that area. What, how do you think it's all going to play out? Because again, you know, what we're talking about is Odessa being the very antithesis of the image of Russia or that part of the world that Putin seems to have embraced. Yeah, well, it, it is. And I think, you know, one searches for moral clarity in lots of conflicts around the world. One searches for moral clarity that is not simply whataboutism when you think about one country invading another country and the degree to which there's, you know, an international sanction for that or not. But it's hard to think of in my lifetime, a moment when the moral clarity here seems to be more obvious. You know, you have a country that has been invaded by another country, a peaceful society that has suddenly fallen under bombs and, and rockets and, and, and missiles. What I worry about right at the moment, I think, as, as, as everyone does, is the fact that there is no particular end game on the Russian side other than utter destruction. And I keep thinking of that quote, with, you know, it's either Mao or Che Guevara, and I can't remember which, who said, you know, the, the guerrilla to win only has not to lose. And I think in some ways that is the position Putin is in now. He doesn't have to occupy and administer all of Ukraine. All he has to do is make it a killing field and destroy it and you know, keep it in turmoil for years to come. And surely he and his advisors must be looking to 2024, not only Putin's own next presidential race, but the presidential race in the United States and wondering whether, you know, in a revived Trump administration, should it come to that, will that break up this remarkable alliance that uh, Joe Biden has, and, and other um, major leaders have, have formed to counter Putin. So, 
you know, I think I think the 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 immediate future is likely to be one of destruction and turmoil, which fits Russian interests and and leads obviously to lives destroyed and disrupted for Ukrainians. But if if we can go back to your Russian history, your Russian history hat, I mean, is there similar episode that we can kind of go back in Russian history and say, okay, something similar happened in this part of the world before? And there is a playbook because, you know, it's Putin, the amateur historian who has emerged in the last 12 months, uh, having never really given much views on history. He seems to be selectively picking from pieces of Soviet and Tsarist history to explain his motives. So is there anything there we can look back to and see? Sure. I mean, it depends on whether you want to, you know, use history just as a way of justifying something you've decided to do for plenty, plenty of other reasons, which I think is probably the the playbook here. But, you know, if you want to go back even to the foundation of Odessa itself, you've got a, a little bit of history that could be used for whatever propaganda purposes you would like. I mean, you know, Odessa is founded because Catherine the Great begins this great push to the south to grab and occupy territory that had been controlled either directly or indirectly by, by the Ottoman Empire. And this is portrayed at the time in the very late 18th century as the arrival of peace and civilization to a benighted, conflict-prone part of the world. Of course, for the local Tatar and Turkic shepherds who were living there or the or the Ottoman fishermen who were on the Black Sea, it didn't look particularly turmoil-prone at all. But, you know, Catherine, when she then moves, uh, moves south, creates all of these new cities from Odessa itself to Sevastopol, the great port in Crimea that becomes the seat of the Russian Imperial Black Sea Fleet and today, of course, the seat of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. So there are plenty of, you know, plenty of ways in which you can narrate history that makes that it, the entire territory of Ukraine, or at least most of the territory of Ukraine, into a forever Russian space. But what has been going on since it became, since at least southern Ukraine, Crimea, became part of the Russian Empire in the end of the 18th century is a backtelling of history to justify mm-hmm. what looks like straight up imperial expansion. And just before you go, if you look at the map, okay, if you can just conceive of the map, it seems that from Crimea, the, the Russian advance is to is to take that coast, is yeah. to take the entire Black Sea to, in a way, hermetically seal Ukraine yeah. Yeah. without any access to the sea. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. You, you know, already the... What the Russians have tried to do is to seize the coast of the Sea of Azov, which is the small little sea that goes off to the northeast from the Black Sea. And they seem to be in control of the most most of the territory um, around the coast there, including the port city of Mariupol, which has been just devastated, absolutely destroyed, and have installed, you know, according to news reports, installed a, a new pro-Russian mayor there. And you would expect them to continue that process around the entire North Coast, so that what remains of Ukraine is cut off from the sea. You know, there is going to be shocking destruction, I think, in in Odessa if the Russians treat it in the same way they've treated Kharkiv and Mariupol and and other places they've bombarded. And we're going to see, you know, the destruction not only of lives and, and livelihoods, but of some great historic treasures, whether it's uh, buildings or artwork or statues or, or simply the, the streetscape. 
And it has been amazing to me the way in which Odessans have, you know, whether they're Ukrainian speaking, Russian speaking, whatever their their background, have banded together to fill up sandbags and put up defenses against uh, against an assault. It's you know it's really remarkable to think that their grandparents and great grandparents experienced a, a very similar thing coming from whether it's Romanian or German bombardment during during the Second World War. But um, they do know how to handle handle this, sadly. Charles King, there's some fantastic stuff. Well, I'll just say to everybody listening, if you're interested, and I think you should be, well, not you should be, but you could be, Genius and Death in the City of Dreams, Odessa by Charles is a really stonking read. And it's unfortunate, you know, that I didn't think three months ago when I read that, I kind of picked it up because actually a friend of mine is living is living out in Odessa and is learning Russian out there. And he said, come on out, come on out, you know, and, you know, it's it's on the Black Sea, it's cosmopolitan, we'll have a laugh. And I was thinking, yeah, we'll go for a laugh. Yeah. Yeah. And that was only just before Christmas. Yeah, and, and I'm really hoping that that idea, go to Odessa because it's wonderful, it's cosmopolitan, you can have a laugh. I hope that in the soonest possible time, that version of Odessa can come back. Charles King, brilliant. Leave it there. Thanks so much for taking the call. Thanks very much. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Have it to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Mark, yeah. Charles there was really interesting and again Odessa is one of those bucket list cities for me. Yeah. I was watching the Odessa file actually. It was on TV. The other yeah, day. yeah. Another classic movie. Which, uh, there's a couple of things that I found really interesting what Charles is saying there. Like Odessa kind of represents everything that Russia, Moscow, Russia isn't. Well, it, it also, you know, if you're someone like Putin, if you have that mentality, that brute force mentality, the very nimbleness, the very almost giving its two fingers to you. Yeah, yeah, Annoys yeah. you, right? Because yeah. it actually, its very existence undermines your worldview. Yeah. 
And that's why I think Charles is saying, and, and we were saying that we fear that they will obliterate it. Now, it's, it's an amazingly beautiful city as well. Yeah. Because what happens is, it's again, it always reminds me of, you know, you see those new cities that are built and they become commercially successful. And then there's a sort of a willy-waving competition <laughs> of people to say, oh, I want to build the most beautiful thing. So, yeah. you know, if you, look at, if you look at Florence in the early 16th century, the yeah. merchants built a beautiful city. But it's like, it's and, like and a modern, the same. yeah, but it's like modern day Dubai or Abu Dhabi yeah, and stuff. It's kind of yeah. trophy architecture and everything. Yeah, I mean, ugly, a lot of the stuff is ugly, but, but they're trying to be these... They're trying to make new, a statement about themselves. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So what Odessa represents is the crushing of dissent, the crushing of an alternative way of looking at things. And, and in a way... For the Ukrainians, you know, certain cities, like, I mean, it's interesting for the Russians, the way Stalingrad was absolutely significant in the yeah. Second World War. Yeah. You know, maybe for the Ukrainians, somewhere like Odessa will be so significant if it falls to the Russians. But as Charles was saying, he was thinking, like, he's been there loads and loads of times. He's mm. like, They're up for the scrap. And they've been there before. Well, all the Ukrainians are. You know, the surprising thing as well, and it's a bit, you probably knew this, but I didn't, was the role of the Romanians in all of that. The Romanian fascist government that sided with the Germans yeah. in 1940, 1930-1940, was an abominable regime. Abominable. And maybe who's, we'll, who was the leader of the Romanians? So it was time? a guy called Antonescu, who was a colonel and then became a general. Right. But the atrocities perpetrated against particularly Jews in Odessa is a shocking, shocking story. And as Charles said, it was the only city during the Holocaust that wasn't run by Germans. So right. the Romanians could be counted on yeah. to do as bad and worse as the Germans yeah. in this mental... And this is what worries me so much about what's going on in Ukraine now. It feels like a Second World War moment feels that we are unleashing forces that are so mad and are so uncontainable and mm. are so driven by racism and so driven by nationalism and so driven by all those brutalist emotions that create extraordinary catastrophes for humans. When you convince, like the fact that Putin has been able to convince many Russians that Ukraine is a Nazi state. Yeah. Yeah. When it's self-evidently not. I mean, as I've always said that, you know, any country that elects a comedian is a brilliant democracy. <laughs> yeah. No, it is because, you know, he's not a strong man. He's not a he's not a party apparatchik. He was a TV comedian. And if you're... Yeah, but there is, Macker, a, a, a very distinct difference between electing a comedian, a clever comedian, and electing a bunch of clowns. You're talking to fellas across in the UK? <laughs> the biggest clown. We'll and come here, back and, we'll and come a little back. bit here as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, actually. We will come back to that point. But on the issue of the comedian, if your country is secure enough to elect somebody like that, it means that democracy is becoming ingrained and deep. And... You contrast Zelensky's career to Putin. Putin's KGB, he's insider, he's the Leningrad mm. mob, he's then 
Yeltsin's chosen successor. Why? Because he says to Yeltsin, don't worry, I'll, let, I'll allow all your thievery to go unreported. Then he creates around him his own oligarchs. Then he expands, then he kills people, then he jails people, then he creates a parallel democracy, then he imprisons dissidents. Yeah. That is an image of the world which is not a million miles from the fascism that caused the Second World War. And that's, I think, where we leave it because that's what's at stake. Just a quick shout out to all our Patreons. Thank you so much for supporting us over the last year. I hope you're enjoying the course. I hope you're enjoying the questions. I hope you're enjoying the uh, chats on Patreon. And if you do fancy supporting us, all you're going to do is go to patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.